You are listening to Is There an Echo in Here? A podcast about Echo and the Bunnymen. Everybody, it is a special day, a very special day for us as a podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, we present to you an interview with Will Sargent, who is the guitarist of Echo and the Bunnymen, the band that this podcast is about. Now, this is really him. This is not, you know, some guy who sounds like him. This is not Shane just faking a British accent. We are really... Yeah, we didn't, like, record... We didn't record a bunch of Will Sargent interviews off the internet and then, like, splice them to answer our questions. Definitely didn't do that. No, no. We, um... We... We found out that we had the possibility of getting this interview, and then um, we reached out, and he agreed to do the interview like one day later. Like the next day. Yes. Like, I'm ready to go. I know. So I, we really want to thank all of our listeners who sent in questions. That is, the, that is basically all we asked him was y'all's questions. I could hardly think straight. You know, it's been a while getting this out because I have to be honest, it's been kind of hard to edit because I want to edit out everything I say and keep everything he said in the podcast. I'm worried, you know, Shane helped me. I'm worried we got rid of that part where he does an American accent. Do you remember that part? Oh, no. Okay. Yeah, I think we might have. I mean, there was just too much. He was so generous with his time. Um, But we were were a little scattered, I think. Oh, yeah. Like, just like... Are you kidding? (laughs) Okay, so you'll notice also the sound on this recording. Like, he sounds great. He's done this before. He's got his little set up in his dead quiet room we are in shane's echoey yet small studio with glass window like uh, yeah and and just and we're shouting at him the whole time i can hardly bear to hear my voice (laughs) in this thing but it's because well i guess what we were like in the room we were like further back. We were further back, and we were. Just I mean, like, he was just like chilled out in front of his computer, and oh, we. Yeah. Were, but there was two of us, so it was like on a screen. So you're kind of. And I'm just yelling yeah. like I don't know, like my mom or something would. Like, <laughs> she, like you can't hear me, and it's just. Um, but nonetheless, um, the interview is great. He was so funny and so incredible. Um, we have an interview that we're, we're sharing the bulk of the interview this episode. And then next month or whenever it comes out, we'll have the second part of the interview, which is my favorite part. He was super generous with his time. We hung out for like two and a half hours or something I mean, like that. It was a dream. It, it truly was. And he was in no rush. We'd circle <laughs> back around randomly to like a topic. I know. Like from an hour before with a follow-up question so <laughs> just come back in and like, you know what it, just he, very free floating you know 
but he's thought about this and talked about this a lot you know so oh, he's, it's yeah. like he wrote just, a book just, about he it. just tells that's what, what it is and that yep that's true actually he yes, wrote a I'm book holding about it. the book in my hands you know we wanted to get this interview out like the day the book came out but yeah, Which, they just mailed out in the United States. Yeah, and they so just you mailed might be out. Holding so I'm holding yours hold, right now. I know I'm hugging it as I as I <laughs> do this intro. I've been flipping through it. There's pictures. It reads really well, y'all. It reads like he talks. It is so funny and so good. Um, but yeah, you know, so this was a a dream come true, and I say that to him at the top of the show, and I want you to pay attention to how heartily he laughs when I say that. I mean, it is my dream. He laughed at my dream, but just to be able to talk to him in real time, I want to thank all the listeners and everyone. Thank you so much for listening. For listening and for giving us the questions. And for writing to, to us. I and know. Uh, I hope I did an okay job. You know, it might surprise some of you to know that I'm actually not like a music journalist. Full-time or a, radio personality. No, I am <laughs> just a fan. And um, and you can you can tell <laughs> in this interview. Yeah, it was really inspiring. Mm-hmm. All right. As you will find out yes. right now. Right as now. As you listen. It's happening. It's happening. I'm Shane, by the way. Yes. Courtney. Courtney. Courtney, Shane. Will Sargent. Yes. Um, You know, it's a childhood dream. Um, I was going to... (laughs) You've got very low dreams. (laughs) I mean, you know, I had a poster with your silhouette right up on the wall growing up. Um, so this is very surreal. Um, and yeah, we are just so glad you're here. I feel like it's been like 30 years since I saw y'all play in 2018 in Detroit. Um, but it's really been three. Um, this podcast we have, we started, I think after we saw you all in Atlanta opening for the Violent Films, I decided to do this podcast um, also just kind of to introduce Shane to music that I love, you know, yeah. what I call I my music. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he knows a little bit, but I call it my music. And so the more we've kind of like gotten into the Bunny Men, the more we end up talking about what I like to call Shane's music mm. through you. You guys have a lot in common musically in mm. terms of like, this thing called Prague. Um, <laughs> well, we went and saw you in Atlanta, you know, yeah. you guys play. And then shortly after we were doing, suddenly doing a podcast about, about the band and the history of the band. And um, yeah, and I was always, my frame of reference, you know, is a lot of jazz, but a lot of like Genesis and Jethro Tull and all uh, these things. And, and, I was, and I was always really su- surprised to like, I'd always somehow shoehorn these things into the discussion, of, like, because just thinking about, you know, um, what I can relate to. And then I would be surprised how much th- that would actually be a part of sort of maybe the lineage, at least. Of- well, I'm just, you know, like, that's all the, the stuff that I liked when I was a kid. Yeah. And I hate these people that deny that they like prog rock. You know what I mean? Oh, no, we, I, we, I wasn't into any of that. You know, I was just straight into punk. You know, it's kind of like seen as like this thing that you can't be into because you were a punk. 
well, tough shit. I was like, you know, 14 and I liked it. So, you know, get over it, you know? So it's, I, I don't like people that make stuff up and lie, you know, yeah, yeah. and like try and alter their history. Right. And deny. You know, it's up. like, deny your history, you're set to repeat it on the, on you, whatever it is that's saying. So, you know, if they keep denying it, we'll have another prog rock, you know, influx. But we already are, you know, with the likes of Muse and Radiohead. They're kind of prog rock. Totally, you know? yeah, absolutely. Just because you like complicated music doesn't mean to say, you, you know, you're an idiot or a complicated person or whatever. It's it's just, you just like that sort of stuff. You know, it's like classical It's like the rock equivalence of classical music, isn't it, really? That's, what it, that's, that's where it came from, whereas like all the... 70s rock bands came from the blues kind of area a lot of these bands came from like a classical kind of thing you know the problem with them is a lot of them people are kind of posh so that was seen as like oh yeah they're all like rich kids and all that you know posh kids so it's kind of that went against punk um so you know but i just i just kept all my stuff all my old prog rock records and yeah. I'm like a defender of prog. <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah. a few people were worried it was like, a, or there's like a musical elitism or something maybe to, yeah, you, know, it is. That you have to have jazz chops or something to, yeah. to be good. Be trained. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and like punk did kick the doors down for everybody else that like wasn't classically trained or didn't know how to play, you know, Rimsky Korsakoff on the bloody piano or whatever, you know, so it was good, like punk was good, but I don't see the problem with liking both. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? So it's like, I like the Stooges and the Velvet Underground and Love and The Doors and all that at, at the same time that I liked, you know, Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Yes and Early Genesis. I didn't really like them with Peter Gabriel, got us then with, um, what's his name? The other bloke. Mm-hmm. Bill Collins. Yeah. I was like, mad. It, it got a bit too mainstream then yeah did you own it did you own it at that time could you could you be because like were you also a vocal defender of it during there was no like there was no there was no need then it wasn't like sort of are you talking about when punk came along or when i was a kid yeah all right okay um it never really came up it was just forgotten right just forgotten about really and people didn't mention it. So, you know, when I was only a kid, so I didn't really think about it as deeply as I do now, you know, and now I sort of think it was a valuable, like Roxy Music would were in the progressive rock section in the, in the record shops. Like you wouldn't call them prog, would you really? But when you think about it, yeah. some of their stuff is quite complex and it's kind of, you know, the, the, the first couple of LPs are, are quite out there, you know, and um, they took a lot from, the German scene as well, you know. Yeah. Right. Like kraut rock stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Joe, you into kraut rock? Do you like can and all that stuff? Yeah. Noi. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I love can. Yeah. I really like Echo and the Bunnymen. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been exposed to a lot of frog for you know yeah. the past twenty years or so. And yeah. that, you know, it's just my destiny to uh, know and <laughs> have it in my life because well, uh, you know, I remember saying to Mac one time, you you know, like he was always slagging me off for liking Jethro Tull, and um, 
I said, well, you know, you just get used to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, when, but he, he didn't. He didn't obviously have all the Jethro Tull albums when he was a kid. But I, you know, I just got used to him and it become like, you know, normal. It's yeah. like the residents. Mm-hmm. You know, I love the residents, but not many people do. You know, they're too weird. But I, you just sort of got to stick with it and get used to it. You know. Yeah. When you you have to acclimate your ears to it, right? You have to listen to it. Yeah. You know, if it doesn't hit you right away, you know, that might actually be the, the best stuff, you know. Well, it's it's like um it's about attention span, isn't it? You know, no one's got any attention span now. They're always on the phones, flicking to the next track or the next whatever app, whatever. And it's just sit down and like we used to just go to round to our mates' houses and put the record on, and we'd all just sit there drinking a cup of coffee or tea. And and that would be it. That would be all like entertainment for that evening. Like, you know, and we sit there and we we wouldn't like talk too much. It'd be we're there to listen to this new record by whoever, you know. Yeah. Um, and we did. And it was great. And you know, that's I know it's like in today's world, it's probably a bit boring, you know, to, to do something like that, but it's also boring watching somebody play like Assassin's Creed for four hours. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I also want to talk about this book. We have not gotten our copy yet, being in the US. And, um, you know, and we were kind of like, wow, we're not first. Like, we're Americans. <laughs> I thought we got everything. Oh, yeah. It's going to be here in the winter. And the publisher sent us like a synopsis that is, I mean, it's the best read, just this one paragraph. But um, it's a pretty short span, this first book, which I really appreciate. You're going mm-hmm. really in depth about growing up in the 60s and 70s in Liverpool. Yeah. Can you paint a picture of some of the hardships that, like, you all were facing during that time? Yeah, it was. There was there was bread strikes. There wasn't, you know, there was uh, all kinds of strikes. Strikes were going on all the time. You know, industrial action. So there was like certain shortages, but it didn't affect me. I was just a kid. I wasn't wasn't bothered. You know, it wasn't like, you know, we had um, power cuts as well. You know, outages. You call them, don't you? Where the electricity goes off for a while, there was all that, and there was like everybody was working. Um, like they had this thing, the four day week. They changed it instead of five days. It was four days, you know, because there wasn't enough. It was mental, but it was, you know, you to to a kid, which I was at the time, you know, I it was just not. It's a grown up world. It was nothing to do with me, you know. It wasn't like a big worry. I'm just I'm just saying what the the climate was like. Right. Uh, political climate and stuff when I was um, growing up, you know, and like also, you know, things about like, you know, the space, space race and all that stuff. And and nuclear war was a massive thing. It was like, you know, we thought any minute now we were going to get bombed, you know. Yes. And, uh, they, they had this thing called Protect and Survive. It was like a uh, pamphlet. And it was pathetic, you know, make a shelter under the table in the kitchen. Right. You know, that sort of thing. Paint the wo- paint the windows white. Right. Paint out. the windows white with whitewash. Just reflect the heat. Wow. 
Yeah, I don't know if that would really help. That's really, <laughs> that's really something. Okay, and you also mentioned skinhead gangs. Mm. Skinhead gangs in them days, it wasn't a racist thing so much. Okay, I wonder. It wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, it, they, were, they were all into soul music, Tamler and Northern Soul and Scar and all that. But they were, it wasn't really seen as, there was like black skinheads, you know. It was, you know. Okay. But it was, um, it's also got hijacked in the 80s by the far right. And they became like the sort of stormtroopers of the National Front, that sort of thing. Um, so it wasn't really a skinhead, I, I mean, a racist or even political thing. It was just like, it was a fashion thing that became uh, sort of out of control. <laughs> you know? and, um, and then it became, you know, they got used really. And a lot of them went along with it, you know. But you know, look at look at you know the specials, people like that. They're, they were sorts of skinheads. You couldn't call the specials racist at all, could you? You know they're not. You know, so it was a weird. It's a always a weird thing. It's like a, I don't know what it is. It's like you know I'm into scooters. I go out scootering with all the scooter boys, and you know, it's it's like it's a working class kind of thing, but there's. There is elements there that are like, you know, right wing, you know, where I get involved with them, me and my mates, like, you know. Uh, but we just like the scooters. We like the look of the scooters and the um, the Italian styling and all that stuff. Um, it's weird. It's a weird kind of, I think the word's dichotomy or paradox, one of them words, you know, where it's like you can't quite understand why it is, but it is, mm-hmm. you know. Like they love black music, but they, you know, the, there's like a sort of nasty side to it, you know. Yes, yeah, and of- on big time in America, you know, it's proper dodgy in America, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's it's not like that here so much now. You know, you hardly ever see a skinhead in England now. Right. I mean, I read um, Lowell Tolhurst's book from The Cure. Like he talks about being jumped, like. I don't know, every day it sounds like somebody was coming along and beating them up just for looking mm. strange. Was there that element? You know, it was around, you know, but, you know, I worked in Liverpool, so I knew, you know, and I didn't look that weird. You know, I, I might have had a leather jacket on. Yeah. You know, I had a leather jacket with velvets on the back. And um, long. I had long hair. I was like a Ramon-looking kind of kid, you know. Yeah. But... Uh, yeah, well, the first thing Les said to me when I turned up at Eric's was, you're not hanging around with us unless you get your hair cut. <laughs> so funny. And because um, he was, Les was in my class at school, you see. At Days, uh, how do you say it? Days Lane? Days Lane, yeah. I hadn't seen him since uh, since school, really, you know. Um, and it was only because of the punk thing I started going to see him up in, where he lived and lived in the next village to me like it's it felt like it was miles away it was just up the road you know like liverpool felt like it was miles away it was eight miles from where i lived you yeah. know walk down from eric sometimes used all your money up there's no way of getting you know couldn't afford a taxi it was out of, out of bounds you know so didn't want to miss something so you'd stay out and then walk home and then get up and go to work right. that was mad yeah, you know, we, first gigs we were doing, we were coming home, 
getting home at like seven o'clock in the morning and uh, I'd have to go straight to work. You know, stuff like that with no sleep at all. Like, you know, you're in the kitchens, you know, people swearing at you. Yeah. Shame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's always the, before you become a guitarist, you have to be like a fry cook. It's just yeah. how you pay yeah. your dues. Yeah. Yeah. When you saw Mac for the first time, you were like, that he's amazing. He's, he had different color hair, I guess, at the time. Yeah. And like, yeah, like several colors, kind of, you know, it's like different variations on a theme. On, on a bleach. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't sticking up, it was like it was big floppy hair, it was on a good haircut, it looked great. Yeah. Um, it wasn't all sticking up on that, you know. Right. And uh, then Les, he seemed like he had some fashion challenges, I think according to Mac maybe, but he had like a, he, you know, he would cut holes in his clothes, but you could see that he had done it himself or something. There was something a little hot topic about it. <laughs> I don't ever remember Les cutting holes in his shirt. Okay. But, you know, Les looked great. He looked like he was out, he looked like he was out of an episode of The Twilight Zone or something. He had like white, you know, or beige slacks on, yachting shoes, um, a crew neck jumper and kind of like, but they all be like mad colors, like, you know, like a bright green jumper. And then he had like this amazing uh, pure white hair. His, his mum had dyed his hair for him. Oh, wow. She was really and, uh, and, you know, like cutting holes in your clothes was normal for back then, you know, like Johnny Rotten. I think he, I think them razor mark holes, you know, was done by moths. I don't think so, you know. I don't, remember, I don't remember Les ever cutting holes in his shirt. Uh, yeah. They were going before me anyway. You know, I, I started going in around, I think it was March 77 or April 77, something like that. Um, it was March, actually. You know, they, they'd been going since, you know, Mac had been going since 76. Did you I see thought, the Clash show? Were you at the Clash? No, that was, that was like the week before I started to go or something like that. Yeah. Les was there. Les has got photos of it, and we're all dying to see him. You know, yeah, still got them. You know, right. uh, just negatives. I don't think he's ever printed them. Right. Um, yeah, I missed a couple of good bands. You know, I didn't. I didn't see the Talking Heads and the Ramones because no. um, I just stayed in because I was so spotty. I didn't want to go out, and it was the Talking Heads supported by the Ramones or. Vice versa, I can't remember which way it was, and it was like I must have been stupid, you know, because yeah, it's probably fifty p to get in or something, you know. Collection. It, it, well, it was, yeah, my brother had that one. He had that Mother's of Invention album, but he didn't really have a lot of albums. Okay. It, 
at that time when he lived at you know, our house. It was his bro, it was his mate from over the road. This lad Steve, Steve Mazenko, they're both called Steve. Um and he, you know, he had like a bigger record collection than, than our Steve. And when when my brother left, um we were still friends with these people over the road. And they um they were record collectors, they were a little bit older, they had a bit more money, you know, they had a job, you know, that's sort what of thing. Yeah. So they could buy records and that's what they were into, music, you know, just lucky. When punk hit, and then Ramones, were, were you introduced to them? The Mazenko boys, Dave Mazenko was the younger brother. He had that Ramones album when it came out. Okay. And I don't know why he bought it. Punk wasn't even, it was like, it was 75 or 76. And he just bought it, I think, because he liked the look of them, you know, long hair and scabby jeans and all that. Right. And um yeah, we used to play it in his bedroom and listen to it, and it was just one of the records, you know. And it was like only later on that they sort of, I don't know, for in England anyway, they kind of became part of that punk thing, you know. It was all it was all the DIY kind of style that you know that I liked, you know, where it was a lit, you know, little gang of lads would make a a record and put it out on their own label, you know, that sort of thing. And the fall were like that, really, you know. Yeah. I really like the fall and they were sort of in with the punks, but when you listen to it, it's not really punk. It's something else. It's like its own thing. You know, it's, you don't know what it is. It's no. kind of a bit garagey, a bit grungy, a bit punky, but it's got this, you know, the, the singing on it is kind of like, it's a lot of, it's kind of poetry really, you know, and a, and a lot of it you don't understand, but you just like the sound of it, you know? <laughs> With punk, like when we think about punk and we think about England, first of all, I thought it kind of originated in England. Growing up, that was kind of my sense. And it was like a Vivian Westwood, like it came out fully formed. Everybody had, like I think what you, you talk about like happening in the 80s where everyone has like the perfect mohawk and everyone is very, you know, oh, it wasn't like that, right? It was more like... Oh, it came, came a bit later. There was that girl, Catwoman. She had like the two bits coming up here. She was uh, one of that... Uh, yeah, you know, from London. She had like the eyes, you know, the kind of cat eye makeup. And you see pictures. She wasn't even in a band, but she was just like, wow. Uh, it's it was it was a like America's punk and British punk is completely different. Like you've got like you know talking heads, television, Perubu. Uh, they were all down as like in that punk scene, you know, but they're not really. And even the Ramones, the Ramones are to, the Ramones to me sound like the Beach Boys or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I love the Ramones and I love television, I love all them bands. But punk was like it was like that homemade thing, you know, it was like fuck you to the record labels, you know, and all the big business. They they all shit themselves. They all started like making their own uh, fake labels or like Corova is a fake label. You know, it's it's like just to make it look cool and like kind of become like a uh, indie kind of it's still just Warner Brothers underneath it all. Yeah, like Fiction Records was like it's all a subsidiary of a is that the word for it music business? It's really yeah, or they, or they were like distributed and pressed by bigger labels that sort of thing, you know. So they did like deals, side deals, and um, it was just to make it all look cool. Really, it's all yeah, bakery. Right. But there was a lot of like labels that where it was just you know 
some people putting it together and putting it out themselves and going around the shops like Zoo Records when we started. Bill Drummond and Dave Balfe would go around all the shops with a box of singles. Do you want some of these singles? You know, to all the record shops. Yeah. And that's how they got rid of them. And then, then once John Peel played us, played the single, he went to Rough Trade Records in London and they wanted 400. And normally it'd be like six or three or something, you know, give us three of them. <laughs> now, now Rough Trade wanted 400. So that was, you know, they were like, bloody hell, you better get pressing some more, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause your first single, y'all pressed like 4,000 copies or something and then they were gone. And like a yeah, it's a bit of a mystery how many was pressed. Because <laughs> yeah. we were like, where'd they all go? Wow, that is impressive. Like, it does seem like there was just this instant kind of like, I mean, here you all are in the world. Well, I used to, um, I worked in Liverpool as a chef, you know, commie trainee chef. And uh, I'd go over to the zoo office in my dinner hour and put, singles in bags and all that stuff you know we had a big sack sack of singles we had like the covers were separate so we had to put them all in the covers and then and a lot of it was mail order you know and it was just like a little advert in the back of the paper or something you know and people would send in a, a check or a post well they had a postal order you know wow. and then we put them in the thing and send it off and that was that's that basic you know and we'd all send them overseas at all? Were they like going to different like were they Yeah, like, some of them. Some yeah. of them were, you know, but not a lot. Like it, it was one once John Peel played us, it was like suddenly we were real, you know. This is happening. Um and he did uh the, the, there was a compilation album came out, which was our very first well, it was actually it came out after the single. It's called Streets Street to Street, and it was like a Liverpool compilation, and there was a few bands on there from you know from from Liverpool, and Peel did the uh, sleeve notes on the back, wow. you know, got it there somewhere. Is that the one that had monkeys on it, but it was spelled yeah. M O N K I E? That one, yeah. yeah. Was that just a oversight? That a, well, that was whoever made the cover didn't know how to spell. It was just. It was a uh, it was a cafe in Liverpool, which was also like a, a phot photographic gallery called Open the Open Eye Gallery. They've still got one in Liverpool now. It's a big big deal now, you know. It's all photography and that. Yeah. And uh, it was just this was a hippie hangout place, and they they wanted to do a label, you know, and they, they called it Open Eye Records, and they asked us, and then we we went we went jumping at you know chomping at the bit to do it. We were like a bit like. Mm. Or the band were on there, you know. Yeah, we wanted to know that we were in good company, kind of thing. Right. Uh, and then yeah, we just did it, you know. Yeah. And uh, what was that? Because some rubbish on there. <laughs> right. Because I remember, I think Happy Death Men was supposed to come out, but it never did. It was supposed to be released as a single. But then this was like, this turned out to be like your second release, this compilation. Right. It was probably. Uh, Maybe something to do with the title. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
crossover and that there was a bit of merging that happened maybe or yeah yeah, yeah and it, 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 it was kind of um liverpool had this big poetry scene in the 70s and they were called the liverpool poets and it was it was um you know the bloke called adrian henry um another bloke called um brian Patton, and roger mcgoff you know they were all like poets and stuff and they but they were kind of like political you know so it was all like criticizing the government or the vietnam war or whatever you know that sort of stuff right. it was done in that sort of liverpool humorist way you know it wasn't like dead heavy it was kind of a few laughs in there as well you know you know the band was called there was a band called the liverpool scene and they um they incorporated lots of different styles of music but also poetry and poetry was a big deal then you know like they, they had uh, Allen Ginsberg on at the um, Saint um, Saint what's it called Albert Hall in London, you know, and a few other poets, you know, and and it was full. It's like five six thousand people, hmm. you know, and they're just doing poetry, but it was all heavy political poetry, you know. Um, so you know you can't imagine that now, like a a poetry reading being like in the Albert Hall and being full, you know. And there was there was this sort of you know, a, a scene in Liverpool that, that was based around poetry, and then and that and it was it was sort of tied in with like a hippie kind of culture thing. And they um, there used to be a place called the Blackie in Liverpool where my brother used to go when they used to go out in town. This is like I was only a kid, so I don't remember any of this. But he's told me, you know, but they used to go out in town, and they you know spend all the money in the pubs or whatever. And they're all long hairs, you know, there's a gang of them from Melon. And then they'd, um, they'd go to this place, the Black Inn, in the basements. They used to show, like, underground films all night, and they just had, like, all mattresses and stuff on the floor. And they, all the hippies used to gravitate there at 2 o'clock in the morning when everything was shut and crash out there till the bus, buses started, you know, in the morning. Right. Uh, and um, so it, have you seen the film With Nail and I? I don't think so. Check out with Nail and I. I've heard of that. Right now, it's what? a great film, and it's like it reminds me. It reminds me of my brother and his mates. Yeah. You know, they were all a bit older than me, and they were all a bit more, you know, smoking dope and all that stuff. I was only a kid; I don't understand none of it. You know, mm-hmm. um, like he left in about nineteen seventy, went to London, and then. Um, you know, then uh, I went up. I, I, I went to see Led Zeppelin in London and went to his his house. It was flat, you know, with all these hippies, and it was just like with Nail and I. So if you get that, it's a great film, by the way. It's a really good film. It's like a cult classic. Okay, sounds super familiar. I'm kind of surprised that I haven't seen it because I like a cult classic. It'll explain a lot of what, like, it's based in London, Camden, but it's kind of what it was like. You know, at that end of the 70s, end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, where the sort of hippie dream was dying. Right. And it was dying. And so then, like, you know, punk kind of was born out of that, ostensibly. And I feel like somewhere in the middle, like a lot of the prog bands were coming into their own. Um, And I know, you know, it's strange, like having been born after Echo and the Bunnymen, 
And we mm. all felt like growing up, we could all be in a band if we loved music and were a little creative and all, you know, everyone was in a band, but this was not the case for you. Like you did not believe you could be in a band until not when I was, it was only after punk started that you sort of thought, right. you know, God, this is easy. You know what, what, you know, let's, you know, let's do something, you know, and, um, it started out with me just messing around with tape recorders and piddling about with a old guitar that I got, you know. I didn't even know how to tune it up. I got it off a um, mate of mine called Paul Simpson in the Wild Swans. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in Teardrop Explodes, at, you know, at that point. And uh, I got like these little pipes that you blow to tune it up, you know. I couldn't figure it out. I was rubbish. <laughs> They're rubbish now. And um, so when Electric Tuners came out, it was like, great. <laughs> uh, so everything was always a bit out of tune or we'd have to get somebody to tune it up for us, Bill Drummond or, you know, somebody, anyone that knew how to tune a guitar would be tuning our guitars up for us. Yeah. So, like, so were you, you were sort of like, a, so you were, when the band formed, you were, a beginner basically would you say yeah yeah i just and it, it seemed like um like the use of like echo and the drum machine must really tighten you guys up because but I, just like yeah. the experience of like playing with emotion and playing live to a drum machine you know the tendencies to speed up and you know like have all these you know human kind of time fluctuations but when you're playing metronomically i mean you guys must have it must have really just drilled you into like yeah, yeah it's the type. I know. Well, we loved like you know Mo Tucker, me and Mac. You know, we loved like you know Develop Underground drummer. Yeah. And that's very like simple. Yeah. And the drum machine could kind of do that. Yeah. And, um, it did get us tight, and it got us rhythmically tight because there was no fluctuation, like you say. You know. Yeah. Uh, I used to just sit in my dad's back room. Me and Mac just thrashing away on the guitars for hours. Yeah, yeah just like ticking away in the background. And eventually we go, okay, we've done enough of that one. <laughs> so yeah. Let's try something else. Have a cup of tea. Right. I think um, just another musical question, because we actually did a cover band of uh, okay, in two, money, 2018, I think it was. And uh, and it wasn't enough to play the parts correctly right like when we, we did you know show of strength for example like yeah, you can get the parts set up and we're playing them all together but it just sounded very static so in addition to like the, everything feeling really tight there's this textural uh dynamic element to the band that that mm-hmm. if you don't have that the songs don't have kind of you know the magic to them this kind of we need this ebb and flow for the music to actually like sound, you know, good at all. Probably just some, you know, because we weren't that competent, just kind of raggedy edges, you know. Sometimes when everything's perfect, it's it's not interesting, right? You know, you want the flaws for it to be, uh, you know, like the Velvet Underground are full of flaws, aren't they? You know, it's and that's that's why I, I like them. You know, they weren't like slick, you know. Um, I don't know. Steely Dan or something, you know.
some really good listener questions. Oh, okay. If you're open to that. Yeah, yeah. Should we go ahead and get to those? Because they're they're really good. Um, Allison Renner, who's also a contributor to the podcast, she wanted to know if you would talk about industrial domestic, like what those experiments were like, what you learned about music making, et cetera. Uh, It was just, it was kind of more an idea. Like we never did a lot. We had we did a couple of sort of jam sessions in my dad's back room, me and Paul Simpson. Right, awesome. And uh, like I found a tape the other day and I thought, oh great, you know, old dust. <laughs> you know, let's get it out. And it was terrible. It was just like there was a in- couple of interesting bits, but it had this sort of sound, which um, I can't remember. I think it was some sort of weird thing going on with the guitar when you didn't put the. You didn't put the, the jack plug in all the way. And it was going, tick, 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 like doing this dead insistent kind of thing all the time. And it was driving me nuts. Uh, but at the time, I thought it was great. <laughs> and it was, um, we never really did a lot, you know. I think the only thing we have we made was a, a paper bag <laughs> with industrial domestic written on it, like a sort to put our vinyl in it if we ever got any. Um, but we we have done a track. Me and Paul Simpson have done a track. Um, Recently, or it's it's called Ectoplasm, and we haven't finished it off. Yeah. It's just like one of them things, but it's it's more traditional, you know. It's not like like it was then because it was just piddling around with effects and drum machine and yeah, there was bands about like uh, Cabaret Voltaire and um, Throbbing Gristle, people like this. Um, and we were kind of like interested in all that stuff, you know, and interested in tape recorders and what you could do with them. But we never really had the money or the skill to um, do that much with them, you know. Yeah, industrial domestic, it's like we still talk about it now. We talk about it as though it was like this big thing, you know, but it wasn't really just me and Paul Simpson piddling around, making funny noises. Yeah. We had, um... we had a song called Julie. <laughs> Yeah, we, we yeah. love reading about the early bands. Like, you know, you, you think this is a really established band. This is yeah. the first band. Right. And like, is it true though that you you all broke up and then Matt got kicked out of Teardrop and then or Shallow Madness, I guess it was called, and then you all found each other, having both recently you know, broken up with your bands. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. I never broke up with industrial domestic. Industrial domestic still exists. Right. <laughs> we've never broke up, but we've never done anything either. Right. It's, it's just a state of flux all the time. It's like this ethereal thing, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it was kind of... Yeah, it was, you know, well, Paul Simpson did go on to, you know, he was in Teardrop Explodes for a little bit, you know. It was kind of his band, to tell you the truth. It was kind of, he was the the main one, almost. Um, and then he, he he wanted out, you know. Right. Uh, um, that was that, you know. And uh, but it wasn't like, oh, I can't do industrial domestic because we hadn't done anything, you know. It was like, we're still, still big mates, you know. You know, he's round here the other week having a cup of tea and that, talking about it. You know, I'm open to go looking for mushrooms with him. Edible ones, not magic ones. Yeah.
plan to go on an epic journey to kind of commemorate the Bunnymen. He's going with a bunch of his friends to various locations where like, where you all have played, um, places that are on the are on the cover of albums. And so, yeah, it, it seems amazing. And then I think the pandemic probably derailed it a little bit. Yeah. But he is wondering, he says, to complete the bunny trip um, from all the locations from the record co covers, the last mystery is the beach on the cover of the Killing Moon 12-inch single. Do you know the location of... No, that was just... It was just a stock photo that they got. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. All right, all right. You all had a hand in kind of the visual iconography of the band. Did you all feel like you had control or did you have a vision? A lot of it was through Brian Griffin, the photographer. Yeah. You know, and they wanted us on the cover, you know, the record label, they wanted the band on the cover. So we were kind of, you know, okay. Um, but we didn't want a, one of them big close-up kind of things. So it was kind of a combination of Brian Griffin finding places, Bill Drummond places where he'd been on holiday. And the one in the one in the one on the beach on Heaven Up Here, we would just happened to be at Rockfield and we needed to do a photo. And that was the nearest beach. Yeah. You know, uh so we went, I can't remember what it was called, even. Yeah. Your mate will know who's on the, he was asking the question. Um, so we, you know, um, we, we sort of got ourselves into this like naturalistic imagery. Right. So we, we wanted all the covers to be like in nature or no buildings or things, in it, you know, like man-made stuff. Right. So uh, that was like the, the theory behind the first four, even though there was a boat on, uh, you know, on ocean rain and we were like a bit like, well, those haven't got anything on, you know, how can we well, just get in the boat? <laughs> All right. There's enough natural surroundings to yeah. make it make and sense. That, like it wasn't natural anyway. That was the cave thing was a slate mine. It has been dug out anyway. So it was in uh, Cornwall. Yeah. So yeah, that was that was Brian Griffin knew that the owner of the land that that little mine thing was on and he'd been there before because he'd been up there was this bloke called jake riviera wow. and uh he wrote stiff records with that like ian jory on and i think they might have even had the damned on at one point um the damned was the first punk single anyway you know new rose that was out before the before the pistols huh. yeah so jake so he, he knew about this this cave and we've done you know the, the woods We'd done the beach and we'd done ice, you know, snow and all that. So what, what else can we do? We, we, I think we went to sand dunes at one point. We thought dunes. And I think, I seem to remember we went to some sand dunes somewhere. Yeah. Tried to do photos, but they just looked boring. So um, the cave was mentioned, you know, Brian, I think Brian Griffin knew about it. There's a documentary on YouTube where he's talking all about, you know, yeah. And it, the way he lit it as well, it looks like the, the water goes around the corner and goes off somewhere, but it doesn't. It's just like a little pool. Uh -huh. It's just the way he had the light in. And inside the cave, it was very drab. It's all just grey, slate, you know, slate coloured. It was only because they got some, you know, lights in there that it made it go all blue and, you know, reflected off the water and everything. 
Yeah, that was that really. And then then when we came to the fifth record, it was like I don't know why, but for some reason, it was somebody had mentioned like we should have a change. I don't know why, and we ended up like using Anton Corbin, and they had a different style altogether. You know, right? The close up thing, and there was a button controversy. Mac didn't like the buttons on my coat. <laughs> Mac didn't like the buttons on your coat. I had a coat on, didn't I have buttons? Yeah. He didn't like the buttons. That was the first album where I really felt like I got to see what you all look like. Like the silhouettes were such a thing. So there was this kind of mystery surrounding the band. We had no stylist or anything like that. But you all did not have a stylist. You all were making those choices. Yeah. You too had a stylist. That, yeah. Yeah, kick it. Kick it. Can I throw in a, a, an esoteric music question? Yes, please. Okay. Um, I noticed uh, a while back you, you were, you know, uh, put Gabor Jabo's Dreams album on uh, Space Junk. And then even, I think the other day on, on Twitter, you put the Gabor Jabo album up. And and after you posted that on Twitter the other day, it was the first time I kind of had this realization that there, there seemed like, I was thinking in songs like like uh, even the melody in Killing Moon or Thorn of Crowns, where there's this sort of um, like economic type melodicism uh, to your playing. And I was wondering if you could speak to that. So. It, well, it, it never came from Gabor Sabo. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I'd never heard of him then. Oh, really? You know, <laughs> I only got into that stuff in the last 10 years, maybe. Okay, you know? cool. Um, and I've started like a jazz kind of section in my uh, records, you know. Okay. Uh, but, you know, I'm always open for things and suggestions and stuff like that, you know, and I'll check it out. And if I like it, I'll go out of my way and I'll find it and I'll buy it, you know. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think, well, my thing really was like the Velvets and Tom Verlaine, mm-hmm. you know, Richard Lloyd television, you know, that's right. that's that's who I was ripping off, <laughs> you know. Because um, that, that was like a simple... Well, they're not like television aren't simple at all, but you know, you know, a big distorted sound and loads of wacky solo stuff. Like somehow they managed to like do a twelve-minute song with about two or three guitar solos in it, and it still sound sort of okay and not like you know a throwback to the prog rock stuff, you know, because mm-hmm. it was intense. It's the intensity. That's what I was trying to get or try to get, you know the intensity of all that. So you don't need loads of notes as long as you're playing the right notes right. and notes that you select are interesting enough. Yeah. You know, that's all you need. You don't need loads of notes like the fall. You know, they don't have loads of notes in their stuff. I know. Like, so I, I feel like, yeah, like if you take a solo, it's always so economical and concise. There's a concision and there's a lot to be said in, in those, in, in a, a small amount of space. Yeah, a lot of it comes from, like, I don't know how to play the guitar, you know, like like he does, you know, Gabor Sabo, you know, I don't, I've got no idea. Like, But um, I, I, what I do is I find my way around 
And if something strikes me as interesting, that's that's what I'll develop, you know. And but like I don't know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I don't want to pick the guitar up, you know. I don't. I haven't got a. I haven't got any idea in my head going. Oh, I'll do this or. Oh, I wonder if that'll work. I've got no idea. Mm-hmm. You know, I've just. I don't like to think about it too much because I think if I start thinking about it, I might kind of start going down more traditional routes right. because you know too much. As you know, if you know too much, it can colour what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never learned how to play Stairway to Heaven or <laughs> Smoke on the Water or whatever. You know, it's it's just to me. Why, why do you want to learn other people's songs? Like, I know you're in a cover band, so you're probably the wrong person to say it to. But I don't I, like we're in a position where we don't have to. You know, we can get enjoyment from doing our own stuff, so it's different kettle of fish. But um, I've always thought I'd rather be creating like i'm sure you create your own stuff as well like i'd rather be creating my own stuff than doing learning how to place things even though we did that tour in sweden where we did cover versions but that was kind of so out of our comfort zone it made us made it interesting yeah yeah i love that paint it black on that recording oh, I love that. Yeah, that. It's, it's all it's all played all wrong and nowhere near as good as they were you know like that our version of friction is nowhere near as good as television and all that, you know, well, my bits anyway, you know, can only speak for me. Um, I'm just loving it half the time. Yeah. And yeah, there's like, you know, it seems like you're serving the music. Like there, I feel like I was listening today and like clay is so different from, you know, the guitar on rightness, which we were talking about earlier. Shane might ask you about sort of a funk influence, but it's just every, there's always so much variety. It's always what the music needs. And, you know, when you use a variety of instruments, like you switch guitars up, but there's always a sound for each song. So- yeah, but we take ages doing all that stuff, getting the right sound for, you know, I know a lot of it was trial and error. Right. You know, it wasn't like sometimes you didn't have any idea until you heard it. And you think, oh yeah, that's the right sound, you know wasn't always like oh let's get a uh, slightly you know crunchy cleanish sound for this one or whatever we'd just start playing and, and we'd just listen to it and think oh no it's a bit sounds a bit crap that let's yeah. try something more <laughs> but it used to take ages you say absolutely days and days trying to find things you know that you like it's a lot easier now with like a computer and like plugins and all that stuff Mm-hmm. Shane's recently discovered some plugins. So. <laughs> well, and, like people, and, people look down on that. Oh, what? You haven't got pedals. You haven't got, you know, the original. Well, no. <laughs> well, you know, I haven't got the time to be farting around with all that stuff, you know. And plus, a lot of it goes wrong, you know. You know, you've got all these leads connecting everything up. You're on stage. You don't want anything going wrong. So it's like sometimes it's good to just have one box that, that does everything. You know, and a spare one next to it in case that one, so they can just swap everything straight away with all the same parameters and patches and everything in there, which is what I do. You know, you never know what's if there's all you know. It's always leads that are let you down. You know, like it's the same with the drum machine. Years ago, you know, I was always having problems with the drum machine because the crappy leads that we we could only afford like cheapo leads. You know, is it the cables? Right, the cables like the connecting cables. 
There's always problems with them, you know. So yeah. something that you learn. <laughs> it's groovy, you know what I mean? It's groovy, but like if you want to change a sound that it's got like four different elements to it, you've got to how do you press four different socket, you know, plugs, you know, um foot switches at the same time? Uh, you can't. It's a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> And there's a great question by um, Todd Gruel. Were all four members contributing musically to the songwriting? Did it was like did Les and Pete bring songwriting ideas or riffs to practices? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Because yeah. Pete could play guitar too, right? Yeah, you know, he, he never really brought riffs or stuff like that. But he, you know, he'd start a beat and me, me and Les would jump jump in on it and Mac and that, and we'd we'd like, it would send us off somewhere, you know? Right. Uh, yeah, Les, like, like a promise was Les, you know? You know, yeah, all the time, like all the middle bit of Killing Moon, Les came up with that. And I, I had to follow it on my guitar lead bit, you know? Mm -hmm. But it was Les that made all the, um, the, the changes, you know? We needed it a middle bit and he, he just came up with that, you know? Yeah, so yeah, it was a four-way thing wasn't just and like you know the way i was looked at it it's like everybody's got to play their own bits it's like four minds coming together and kind of creating a diff you know a, if it was one mind it would all start sounding the same you know you said before you know that the, the songs are all different and all that because it's just it's four people going well i'm gonna do this and i'll do that and max saying i'll do this you know so it's kind of we went we went in like a rut you know of like one person's vision it was all four of us yeah that's what i really liked about it you know i liked about you know the, the early records you know and i i just looked at it like everybody's doing their own thing so i'm not going to be telling pete what to play or mac what to sing you know he, he, he's the one that's got to believe in it and do it so get on with it you know yeah. um and the same with me, I'd, I'd, I'd hate it if somebody started saying to me, oh, don't play it like that, do this, do the other. I instinctively knew what I wanted to do. Right. Or if it was wrong, I'd know straight away. No one had to tell me, you know. Right. If there was something that you did that everybody hated, they'd compare it to something that you hated. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, that's our well, Yeah. You know, the, they knew the stuff that we hated, like, so they'd say, oh, that sounds a bit like, well, I can't remember anybody now, but, you know, someone that you thought was shit. <laughs> I think, I'm, okay, I'll think something else. But they didn't say, do it like this, or, you know, I didn't say to anybody, do it like that. Because right. I think the magic would have gone, you know, I think the sort of, like you say, that, that other thing that goes on. Yeah, like, it's like on um, Billy's Terrace, I'm playing an A minor chord and Max playing an A and an E major chord at the same time. So it sounds a bit odd. It's a bit off. You know, it's not quite right. Um, and people go, is that E minor or E major? I can't quite tell. <laughs> I wanted it to be E minor and he wanted it to be E major. Right. <laughs> you know, because he, you know. Yeah, that's, that's the point. <laughs> I don't know what it is. E major minor. And you said it was a lot of trial and error, just kind of try, just trying different things for like 
Um, hey, yeah. It's a, and then not liking it, trying to just craft the sound. Cause you know, when like a marimba comes in all of a sudden, you know, there's always one thing I always think about the band is having these very like distinct parts, like changes in, in texture and timbre between the sections of the song, you know, they'll, they'll be like, yeah. introducing new elements and, and it doesn't have a date to it. It doesn't like, it doesn't date it. Yeah. Anyway. Any marimba stuff was generally Pete DeFraser's, you know, cause <laughs> he, he could play the piano as well and guitar. Okay. Yeah, he was. He, he did some piano bits here and there as well, I think. Um, Village Terrace. It also comes under percussion, so yeah, he can do that dead fast. Yeah. Was he playing on Village Terrace <clears throat> the piano parts? I think that might have been on the LP. I think it was Balf. Dave Balf did the little. <laughs> but on the John Peel session, it was me. Oh, okay. Oh. And he did a variation on what I did on that John Peel thing. He did more, slightly more to it. You know, there's not a lot to it, like, but yeah, we all jogged in. If the, if Les was there and needed a little piano bit, he'd do it. You know, Mac was there, he'd have a go. You know, it's kind of whatever, whatever was needed. And, you know, like sometimes I'd double my guitar bits with a piano thing right. um, just to give it a stranger sound or whatever. On Simbo, played the guitar with her uh, pair of scissors, sort of scratching it like you know, like a bit like her, um, uh, a violin bow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I do it like when I do it live. I have a little bit of metal and a scratch. This is, you know, uh-huh. It was scissors. Um, we did all kinds of mad stuff, you know. They, uh, I on. Happy Death, man. There's a there's like a big scream. I don't know if you've ever, ever noticed it. It's like a big scream. Yes, yeah. That, that's me on the end of one of the corridors at Rockfield, and the microphone was at the other end. Oh. It was kind of like I just had to scream as loud as I could, and then I lost my voice. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's like a sample. It's like kind of one of the first samples ever used, I believe, that was brought in. Is it with a hip? Yes, it is. Yeah, like yes. uh, it. Well, that is. It's. We went to Bristol Docks. Me and Bill Butts. He had a. Um, there's a little portable tape recorder that they use in films called a Nagra, or not Nagra or something like that. It's like a little reel-to-reel tape recorder, and we we just went out. Me and Bill Butts in the. He had like a, kind of like a big Land Rover thing. Like Bill Butt was our lighting man, but he was, you know, he did took photos for us as well and did videos and did all the KLF videos and all that. He was he was he was mates with Bill Drummond. One of Bill Drummond's mates from from there when he worked in theatre, you know, doing like props and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes. So me and Bill Butt went out and we just went to um potted around. We were just looking for some sounds to record, just interesting sounds. And we went to Bristol Docks and there, were, there was a dredger. It's like a big barge and has a big claw on it. And they dig out all the silt from the channel, you know, and put it in the in the barge and then go and dump it out to sea or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> we just recorded that. Okay. And it sounds, it's weird because it sounds like it says, like it was just the sound of the thing. It was like, a, you know, the arm moving and dredging all this stuff out. Huh. It's. It sounds like somebody goes, "Good, crap." 
<laughs> the town of the sea. And it, but the weird thing is, it sounds like Max's voice. Very odd. Who oh, yeah. do Billy at it again? Yeah, right. I know. We're always looking for yeah. that. Who do Billy? <laughs> <laughs> and like okay i want to talk about this the funk element because in a podcast i was listening to you saying that it wasn't quite funk but there is just like there's something well mostly in in some of the rhythmic rhythm guitar parts and and then in, some, in the bass lines you, you have you know a lot of like ghost note like like straight up funk picking going on Maybe yeah. not for the whole song. Like I was thinking, where you know, like in the verses on the puppet, for example, you know, where it's like, um, but then nobody would call you guys a funk band, you know. And to me, when I made that realization when I was learning the songs for the the, the cover band uh, that we did, uh, I, I I was like, wow, this is really surprising. But this is this is James this Brown. Is, yeah, this is James <laughs> Brown funk going on here. We, we did love James Brown. You know, we did love James Brown. Yeah. Uh, Max brilliant at that sort of fast, like you know, um, rhythmic, you know, f- kind of funky stuff. Yeah. So, like, some of it was that, and some of it was like interplay between me and him, both of us doing it because we loved um, like the Velvet Underground, you know, like what goes on, and there's like a dead. There's a great version on that live 1969 record. Goes on for ages. And it's just like them, to, you know, they're just like funking away. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it was, it was a bit of a combination between, I don't know, James Brown, Talking Heads, and um, the Velvets, you know, because the Velvets could do that sort of scratchy right. chord, chord stuff as well. Yeah, so, yeah, I agree. We're not funk, but we are funky. <laughs> for about an hour it's so kind of you do you have time for a question or oh yeah keep going all right um okay this is a question about touring in the u.s what was your first tour this is also todd gruel what was your first tour of the united states like i would like to know you know what did you expect you can be as honest as you like we are just like a bunch of fast food chains here and highways <laughs> But did you, you know, did you headline during your first tour, right? You did, or open up for another band? What was the reception like? And do you have any memories of cities or venues that you care to share about? Well, the first thing we did, I think we went to New York and we did um, somewhere in New York. Um, God, I'm in the Ritz. I'm not sure. It's some place in New York. Yeah. And and we always used to go after we'd done the gig, we always used to go to the Peppermint Lounge, um, which is another club in New York, and and do like another little gig there, like an after show gig for another five or six songs, just for the vibe, you know, because we sort of got to to know the people. Um so and it was just one. New York hey? was like a big so New York was kind of your first kind of like, I don't know, central location in america that you would yeah i think and, and also when we got there there was all these posters everywhere the sound of the echo is coming that's what it said and that's they were for us you know the record company had put them around and we were like dead plea you know like we were sort of wow you know that's, that's great you know because we were you know 
small small scale band at that time, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think I think we just did New York. I'm gonna to have to find out all these facts properly for the next episodes of the book, you know. But the um, and then then we did like a small tour, but I don't think we supported anybody. I think we'd sort of become a bit of a flavor of the month thing, you know. So there was people know knew about us. Um, I think the first LP was out, wasn't it? Or was it the second LP? Yeah, was it 81 this person? Maybe it was like after, maybe it was, I'll have to look into this because I'm, I need to get these facts straight. But uh, I seem to remember we when we were doing Heaven Up Here, we, re, we were rehearsing in the pig sheds. There's like these old pig sheds there because it's a farm, you know, at Rockfield Studios. Um, where we did the recording, you know. So we'd be recording all night, and then we'd like the next day we'd be rehearsing because we had to do we had to do this American tour, and I think it was our first American tour. But we had been to America and done like a couple of gigs in New York, and we we also did. I don't know whether we did um we did LA, and we did sit we did I think it was four or six shows at the Whiskey Go Go, and all sold out and that you know. So it's kind of like we were sort of getting compared to the doors a bit. So they put us on at the whiskey a go go, you know, the whiskey in the um, Sunset Strip or whatever it is. <laughs> and it was uh, yeah, that was pretty early on. So I know um, Flea was there because I was talking to him about it. Really? Um, he was there and he said it, you know, changed his life. <laughs> nice. Yeah. It was uh, it, the first trips of America was. Blew our minds right rarely, you know. It was, um, yeah, I'd been to Europe. I'd before the Bunny Men, I'd never been to Wales, which is 30 miles that way, you know, uh, for three days. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't stand it. And I came over, I was only a kid, like I was about seven. That's the only other place I'd been outside of where, you know, my village. Wow. And so when we went to America and Europe, you know, you, you can't believe it. You, you you can't, your brain can't comprehend that there's all these other places. And it was, you know, fascinating. And, and America, I, I didn't really like America when we first started going there. It's more like the sort, it came across as like a bit fake. You know, we had to deal with the record label there and they all seemed a bit like, Archie Putchkin or whatever from um, Spinal Tap. You know him? <laughs> Kick my ass. You know him? <laughs> I fucked that. Kick my ass. You know, it was all a bit like that. <laughs> you know, and, and we just thought, oh, God, these fakers. It's weird. And, uh, but it took a while. And then I sort of started to understand it. And now, like, I love America and I miss America. Like, you know, I really miss going there. Um, just the, the the diversity of the country, you know, like Washington State, and then you go down, you're in, I mean, Arizona, and there's scorpions scurrying around. It's just brilliant, you know. It's 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 like all the countries of, of Europe in one country. Totally. Yeah, you've got Pennsylvania that looks like England. Yeah, you know, Boston and New England and all them places look quite English in a way, you know, like rolling hills and farms and all that, you know. And then you've got southern 
the Grand Canyon or somewhere like this, you know, Niagara Falls. Yeah. It's nuts. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I just love that. And I love like the deep south, you know. I went to Savannah not long back. That was amazing. Yeah, oh. superb. Um, uh, I've always wanted to go there. Um, and it was great. And, and the culture, you know, the culture's great, you know, like we're brought up with American culture, American films, American cars, you know, yeah. all that stuff, the space stuff, you know, I love all that, you know, yeah. you know, the moon landings and all that sort of swag. Yeah. Uh, and the thrift shops and and, every, and when we first started going over there, everything was like half the price of England because we, we were getting virtually $2 for a pound. We used to get like one ninety something for a pound, so we'd have like loads of money to spend. You know, plus everything was like half the price of it was in England anyway. So we were all buying Levi's, you know, five by ones. Like they were, you don't heard of in England. No one had heard of them. Yeah. And Wayfarer, you know, the Ray-Ban Wayfarer glasses. Yeah. Oh, uh, you know, we all bought them. You know, we're like wow, these are great. You know. Um, so the, the, yeah, there was like stuff like that. You know, we used to enjoy. Go into you know, thrift shops and you know, stuff like this. One of my questions was, um, you know, did you feel like you were being pulled along by? The, just the momentum of what was happening? Yeah, a lot of it was, you know, it was kind of, um, you know, we'd sort of, you know, set sail on this thing and then, like, there was, like, a wind pushing us forward somehow, you know, and it was it was unstoppable until it stopped. Right. <laughs> you know, and, um, it, you know, especially in America as well, we were, like, Every time we went back to America, we were doing bigger places every time. And it was like, uh, it was kind of this, I was thinking of it as like a snowball going down a mountain and there was no stopping it. It was gathering snow. Yeah. And, um, it's, you know, it, and it was a natural thing. It wasn't like fake or, you know, it just grew naturally. It was more like a grassroots kind of deal, you know. Like I don't know. I was thinking of it the same way. Like REM became like a really big band, yeah. but they didn't compromise anything, or they didn't, you know. They still like did good records, and um, yeah, they did commercial records, but they were on their own terms. They weren't like cheesy, you know. Right. Um, I'm talking heads as well. I think you know. Yeah. Um. Gosh, you have just been so generous with your time. This really is like a chat, like a goal. Like I never even dreamed, you know, that I would be speaking to you. The music has meant so much to me. Um, just, it's been there for every part of my life. My daughter, we, you know, we never push the bunny man on her because we just, you know, don't want to. Yeah. I mean, yesterday she's sick. She gets home from school and she's like, let's put on that on the bunny man. Let's put on the one with the water. She likes Ocean Rain and Silver is yeah. a big song. And it's just so timeless. I feel like there's a whole younger generation. That was our plan to make timeless music. That was that was always the thing, you know. 
that, that's why we didn't sort of follow the trends of the times in sounds, you know, like everyone was using the Yamaha DX7 synthesizer. Yeah. And a bit nice, you know, and a bit, it just dates, yeah, we wanted classic sounds. Well, Sergeant, I mean, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much. On this podcast. Wow. Right? I mean, what can I say? Thank you so much, Will Sergeant. Check that dream off the dream list. And, you know, get on with it because mm-hmm. that, I just thought there that, was so much. That happened. <laughs> I really like the Gabor Jabo question that you asked. Oh, yeah. That was my favorite, but really it led into some really interesting stuff. I know, stuff. I was so embarrassed. <laughs> no, oh, I was so embarrassed. I was trying to like, chin, I was trying to <gasps> chin scratch like. I noticed that some of your playing yeah, you told might me resemble that. a thing. And I was oh, like, months, but months I still ago. think that it doesn't matter because everyone, everyone's drawing from the same pool of exactly. like creativity and inspiration and art, you know? So know. that's what, it's not, a, it's not, the ideas are already all there. And Is that's Gabor something Jabo, that he resonates with. So of course he likes it after the fact, but it was always with him, you know? It was always there. He's not a reincarnation of the guy. That no, 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 because they're still like, alive. yeah, because <laughs> Will was like a teenager and, and okay. uh, he was still cutting records. <laughs> Well, anyway, you know, um, I'm just saying go out and get his book. Okay, because, I mean, is this weird to say, but I kind of wondered, like, is it going to be good? You know, because I've read, I've read yeah. some books by some, you know, here, and I've been, you know, some people are better sticking with music or something. I'll tell you, you what, what man. <laughs> I'll tell you what. I'm reading, actually, the funniest no, you're reading autobiography of all time. This, it's similar. By you're Miles reading. Davis. Yes. Miles Davis and Shane reads me excerpts, but he does it in Miles Davis's voice. It'll start the first he word. Was a motherfucker, man. First <laughs> mother- word is listen. That's the first word of the whole book. Oh yeah, right? listen, listen. But you know, you he says motherfucker like ten times a page in his book because Miles Davis's book is just Miles Davis talking. Yeah, in, this is Will talking. I'm yeah. reading through. So now I'm reading it, and I'm like, oh, this is. Excellent. Oh, he didn't type it this out. This is not some other. Hmm? Who, someone else. Who's the? Someone else helped him. No, no, I don't. I don't think so. No, I don't know how it happened. But this is some good. This is good stuff. Like this is. Is there a co-author? No, I don't think. Will Sargent. See, Will okay. Sargent. So nobody was like. No, I think and he. Then they typed ooh, look and at the colorful pictures and this. The inside. Anyway. Uh, Dude, this is so. Cool. So exciting! Thank you, Will Sargent, for. Come on our show. show like eight and, months uh, ago. I know. But we're just in time for the week of the book drop. That's yeah, good. Yeah, we got yeah. the book, what, two days ago? Courtney had the, got a little sick, so we, had, we couldn't get it out the day of, but that's all right. Look at Station Road in the 60s, y'all. You know how we do. We're just kind of seat of our pants. The Champs tequila. Uh, oh, this is so good. It's be great. Y'all, read this book. Forget this interview. I'm just over this interview, but like, look at the book. All right. It's going to be fun. Will it be as fun as Courtney and myself (laughs) making stuff up and guessing at all of the the events that transpired? I know. What is this going to clear up? Here's another thing, too. 
because you know everybody you're free to turn off this uh podcast at this point but i'm just gonna go ahead and say <laughs> like i wondered so when he came out with his book i was like oh well this is you know it's going to tell his whole story right but he is lining up his book pretty perfectly with our podcast chronologically speaking yeah but he's not getting ahead of us so if if he just keeps taking his time with the next book i guess it's good that he's actually on pace with us because we can continue to make stuff up right is that what no you're saying yeah know. then you he follows up with the book every now and he then clears and it all up be like oh okay and he just like sweeps our mess into infinity carpet. yeah yeah <laughs> all right well all right. well if you'd like to drop us a line, please oh, do so. Please do. It's echoinherepodcast at gmail.com. Oh,